0: From then. I've been BBC diplomatic correspondent since 1998, and before that I was correspondent in Washington and Moscow. And What I want to focus on today is reflections on how my job has changed, especially since I first came back to the UK in 1998 to do the diplomatic job, and the challenges that have emerged from that, because there have been some extraordinary shifts. Um, there's the shift geopolitically, which countries have more clout. The social shift, who calls the shots and makes change happen in society? Although paradoxically, the economic gap between rich and poor in many countries continues to grow. Um, As we've seen in the the last year with what's happened in the Arab world, the power of those at the top, especially the political elites, those linked to government to dictate the course of events is much less certain. Then there's also the process of being a journalist. It's much more diffuse, the way we gather and disseminate information Has in a way become more challenging. There are fuzzier lines between the private and public domain, more information out in the open and available more quickly, and an evaporation of boundaries in time too, the 24 7 stream of information which has changed assumptions about appointment viewing. How do you hold back material for the main evening news when someone else is churning it out for immediate consumption on a rolling TV news channel or on Twitter or for an online article? And uh, it's harder to assess what's happening true, but it is possible to view much of the world much more quickly. That makes it difficult to keep up with everything. So we're less high bound by limited technology and established procedures. Uh, But you have to be, you have to think harder about priorities. And you also have to think harder about keeping an open mind. So overall, it's, it's more challenging, but I would say, more interesting and intriguing too. That's broad brush. I want to look in a bit more detail at these four areas. The challenge of shifting geopolitics, the rise of the rest of the world, the impact of the information revolution on changing balance of power in society, and from a journalistic perspective, the impact of changing technology on the way we work. And lastly, another trend, the challenge of changing audience interests and how journalists can respond to them. So, number one, geopolitical shifts. This is anecdotal. It's my personal point of view. It's not intended to be comprehensive or scientific. But I do think it's instructive to look back over the last decade or so. When I came back to London, end of 98 to 99, maybe it's too crude to say that it was a unipolar world, but it it did feel as though we were in a post-Cold War universe that was dominated by America... Um, The Clinton presidency seemed to be presiding over an era of prosperity and stability despite the mounting debt problems and hidden financial flaws we now know about. The US seemed to be the force that was driving globalisation, free trade, the rise of the internet, advances in science and technology, and I think at that point it did feel on the cusp of the 21st century as though the next century was going to be the American century. In fact, I must confess that I was involved in a Radio 4 series based on that premise. It's quite interesting when you think about it now. No one perhaps would say this is the start of an American century. But the West seemed to be in ascendancy, and there was an assumption that the rest of the world aspired to its values. And you had on the right, um, Fukuyama and his triumphalness, triumphalist end of history thesis that with the end of the Cold War, socialism had been vanquished. There was no argument anymore ideologically. And if you like, on the left, although he wouldn't call himself the left, Joe concept, also from. Um, Uh, The U.S. academia of soft power. There's no need to force people to do things through hard power anymore. You just simply have to encourage them to want what you want. And the presumption by all in that was that the U.S. and its allies in the West had a role to play in spreading liberal democracy, removing dictators, strengthening market economy to deliver growth globally, and thereby deliver prosperity for all. And with that assumption came a view that the way to tackle ills like global poverty was top down from rich nations to poor. I used to go to G8 summits every year. The get together of the haves to promote and celebrate growth in their own economies but also to counter their critics by coming up with policies to forgive and forget debt uh, for the poor. A very paternalistic view now looking back on it. Um, Then along came George W. Bush who accentuated this sense of American exceptionalism and with his unilateral foreign policy decisions, walking out of treaties like the ABM Treaty and um, ignoring allies and international organisations like the UN culminating, of course, in the Iraq invasion of 2003. So the sense was that the US was the most powerful country in the world. It could lead it. It could impose its will on it. And interestingly, from here in London, as a diplomatic correspondent looking also at British foreign policy, I think a decade ago we also too had a feeling. Britain was a leading country in the world. It was part of this pattern. We were among the top dozen of biggest economies in the world. We were a key du- Britain was a key diplomatic player. it was in the u n security Council, G eight. It was a major player in both the EU and NATO, which, although large, were not as unmanageably large as they were to become later. And if you look, for example, um, Britain's role in um, one area, very active policy at the time, Middle East peace. Um, President Clinton was negotiating, bringing leaders to his Camp David retreat to try and get a peace. That was still being conducted bilaterally. And London was an important stopping off point. I remember one Israeli diplomat saying to me at the time, we like to come to London, not just um, because you're a close neighbor, of a uh, close partner of the United States, but because we can find out what the United States thinks before it yet knows it. <laughs> the Britain, you know, a player in the Middle East could whisper in years in Washington. Uh, and if you look at what was happening at the time, UK diplomacy was a driving force. It was with the French. Um, it was the UK that drove the diplomacy, failed diplomacy, but still important, that led to the NATO intervention over Kosovo. Um, As I said, in the Middle East, it was on the fringes of Clinton's attempts to forge a new Middle East peace deal, And after um, 9-11, visits to Iran by Britain's foreign minister of the time, Jack Straw, with his French and German counterparts to engage the then-Iranian regime uh, was an important diplomatic initiative from Britain, which has now evolved into the current twin-track nuclear policy uh, being led by um, the EU on Iran. And Britain was a player in Iraq in the policy search to contain Saddam Hussein first, and then, of course, joining the US in the Iraq invasion. Of course, part of this was this this general belief um, that Britain shared with America that it had an obligation to make the world a better place. So I think partly one can say it was due to the leader of the time, Tony Blair, had an almost messianic interest in humanitarian interventionism laid out in his Chicago speech of 1999. But it reflected the spirit of the times too an obligation, I think, after the end of the Cold War to show leadership and in an increasingly globalised world to take responsibility for the less fortunate. And um, after the end of the 90s, a dismay, a sort of guilt at the failure to respond adequately to the violence in the Balkan Wars and the Rwandan genocide... So it wasn't just Blair's compulsion to intervene. Sometimes with success, remember how UK troops went into Sierra Leone to save or to rescue UN soldiers who'd been taken hostage. But there was also a broader shift at that time at the United Nations, the new responsibility to protect clause that was adopted to sanction interventions across borders in the name of humanitarianism. So that was, the, that was how the West was. And the rise of the rest... If you roll back 10 years, it's hard to believe it now, but it was still barely imagined. Russia was recovering from Soviet collapse. It was in the final days of the Yeltsin presidency, in disarray following the ruble crash in 1998. Mortality rates for men were, I think, the lowest in the developed world. And people would speculate Even on... the highest, mortality. Mortality, yes. Yep. They, they died younger yep. than anywhere else in the, in the developed world. And people used to speculate on how could it survive until 2005 when its foreign debts would come due and surely the infrastructure would collapse. China had not yet begun its economic rise and similarly there were predictions that it could face possibly dangerous social unrest if it was unable to deliver the resources to its growing population. The other so-called Asian... Tigers were faltering, there were financial crashes in Thailand and South Korea. India was still largely seen as a poor country, looming large in statistics on global poverty and illiteracy. And even though India and Pakistan both joined the nuclear club in 1998, testing their weapons, uh, it wasn't seen, as perhaps it should have been as a sign of the change of balance and security power, it wasn't seen part of a bigger pattern. Uh, where dangerous precedents could be set. Both countries were rewarded within the next few years by better relations with the United States, a fact which North Korea and Iran, no doubt, uh, (coughs) are noting closely now. And if you look at the other nations who seem so much more prominent now, the BRICs, the other BRIC nations, Turkey, Brazil, and other mid-sized countries, they were only just, or not yet emerging, the Middle East was focused above all on Saddam as a regional troublemaker. The price of all oil was still relatively low. So the enormous sovereign wealth fund um, uh, stashes that uh, oil and gas producers in the Gulf and elsewhere had not yet become so dominant. So the question is, how and why did all this shift? Um, that's for historians to analyse properly. But my anecdotal sense is that the most dramatic point, not surprisingly, was... The readjustment in security assumptions in the West after 9/11. So, um, and f- followed by the Iraq war. Um, I note that nowadays President Obama's people talk about the, they, they say, a decade of war that is coming to an end, by which they mean Iraq, US. withdrawal, Afghanistan, predicted withdrawal, and the severing of al-Qaeda's leadership with the death of Osama bin Laden you could argue we're about to enter a new era of more troubling security problems with the return of a new nuclear standoff in the gulf between iran and sunni arab's who knows what north korea might do pakistan's leadership uncertain growing tensions as washington reasserts itself against china in the asian pacific you could you know you could argue we're on the verge of a new nuclear age uh, which will mean that the 9/11 terror saga will seem like a sort of walk down a, a a side street not a game changer but in its time it did alter perceptions and priorities there was a new world of asymmetrical threats that was no longer theoretical it wasn't any more about who had the biggest and most nuclear weapons if someone could fly a plane laden with fuel into a skyscraper and traumatize a superpower ideology was back you couldn't be complacent about Fukuyama's end of history claim anymore Uh, the liberal democracy and market economy model had won when there's a growing awareness that to challenge Al-Qaeda properly, you had to challenge its appeal as well as its ingenious tactics and stop its ability to enlist new recruits. Uh, So you had to expose the destructive force of its ideas as well as track down its operatives and forestall its operations. And above all, the idea was undermined that the US, and by extension its allies, were the undisputed leaders of the world and where its desired destination. This was no longer just an object of envy, but an object of anger. So the soft power model was no longer as simple as offering a world of Western t-shirts and pop music and democratic values. And it created a new imperative to enlist allies. So the unilateralism that there had been meant isolationism and vulnerability, reinforced, of course, by the whole Iraq invasion episode for the US and UK and the damage to their prestige, Uh, the lesson of what could happen if you go it alone against the wishes of allies. And so in the Bush term, actually, there's a very important strategic shift towards multilateral support, a new interest in the UN, in NATO, in Afghanistan, coalitions of the willing... On Middle East policy, there was the creation of the quartet to bring Russia on board while keeping the balance of power in Washington, so it's the US, the UN, Russia, and the EU. And then at the same time, perhaps less visible, only clear in retrospect, was the rise of the rest, which we're now also aware of. Incremental, but, of course, pivotal. China joining the WTO, remarkable growth that exploded with profound consequences for everyone, And when the 2008 crash came along and there was a startling contrast between how the US and Europe fared when the rest of the world seemed to manage to continue growth and even pull uh, the Western world with it, it confirmed the new reality. I I remember in 2008, we were still asking, is it true that when the US sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold? Well, it turned out when the US sneezed, China was able to offer it a handkerchief. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) if you reflect on this, the impact of this economic shift, which is now a given for us all um, what else changed? For example, poverty alleviation the millennium goals set in, in the year 2000 to halve poverty in 15 years. Western nations made pledges, some quite a lot of them didn't keep them and instead the progress and quite a lot of the indicators has been due to growth in countries like India and China who pulled their own people out of poverty simply by themselves getting more prosperous Uh, And now we're looking at growth rates in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, which are outstripping most of Europe, admittedly from a very low base. But it's astonishing if you think about those debates 10 years ago about the intractability of sub-Saharan poverty. Russia and China, economic powerhouses, with that have come new models of development, not necessarily linked to conditional aid. The UN Security Council is no longer dominated by the Western trio of US, Britain and France, China and Russia are no longer afraid to block a consensus as we see on Iran and Syria and we have new diplomatic initiatives emerging Turkey and Brazil put forward ideas of how to solve the Iranian nuclear problem. In the Arab Spring, yes, Libya was a western campaign but in reality uh, it was the Gulf countries and the Arab League who gave the essential green light to action and behind the scenes played the most crucial diplomatic role And if you look at the UK's profile uh, in that time, it's changed markedly. And actually, if you look at the um, just Middle East, um, the arrival of the Quartet was symptomatic of how changes in structures of decision-making to incorporate multilateralism have really affected Britain. So uh, change in two structures, actually, because- Sorry, Bridget. Just remind us, who are the members of the Quartet? Quartet, the US, the United Nations, the EU, and Russia. So um, the EU is representing 27 countries. That's 1 27th for Britain, and only one quarter of the quartet. So it's quite a small voice for Britain, uh, arguably, if you if you break down the equation. And as a consequence, when you look at British diplomacy, it's still got an important role in build, helping build coalitions, but it's much less visible in a front seat role. It's Been forced to recognise its main strength is through being part of a powerful coalition, not a single voice. So, sanctions now that Britain wants to sponsor go through the EU on Syria and Iran. If it tries unilateral, it can lead to unhappy consequences. Look at its spat with Russia over Litvinenko, which wasn't backed up by its EU colleagues. And Britain arguably paid the bigger price. Russian spies were blocked from collaboration with UK agencies, but actually for several years, UK officials were frozen out of top-level meetings with the Russian leadership. And so now with the current Conservative-led coalition government, you see a UK foreign policy that's trying to carve out a more specific British role, claw back more powers from the European Union and the European Council, as we heard from Cameron yesterday, trying to strengthen bilateral relations, especially beyond Europe, to countries with growing economies. But actually, even William Hague will admit, Britain is now a large, medium-sized country, and no longer in the top tier. It's trying to punch above its weight. But its policies are mainly driven by its parlous economic straits and intensive search for trade opportunities, and by what it can do working with allies. And we're in a world where other countries compete for seats at the top table and are much more convinced of their own importance. The Turkish president was in London at the end of last year and I was at a meeting sitting next to a Turkish businessman who asked me, what do you think is more important for Britain? A visit by President Obama or, for, or by our president? And he was convinced that Turkey was important, as important in the world, as the United States. And from his point of view, you can see why he thought that. So what impact did the shift have on diplomatic journalism? Well, ten years ago, Foreign Office briefings made regular news and it was part of my job to report and analyse what the UK and its officials were doing on and off the record. And it was a viable prism through which to see the world. You needed alternative viewpoints, obviously, but it wasn't a bad starting point. Today, Cosmopolitan London is still arguably the best place geographically to survey the world from. Lots of people come through, but it's because it's a hub of global interchange, not... Primarily because of what's going on in Whitehall. And nowadays, it's no longer just the UK Prime Minister or even the US President who make international news when they speak. Uh, you have to track what's being said by other international players just as much in Berlin, in Cairo, Damascus, Ankara, Beijing. Changes in communication have obviously made that easier. You get live feeds on your desktop. Alerts on Twitter will tip you off when someone somewhere has said something significant. But we're also very aware that this geostrategic shift has been mirrored in the media too. The BBC is still a major player in global media, but it's not necessarily the only one, or for some people, the main one. There's (coughs) CNN, yes, but Al Jazeera English is a very respected alternative. And in the Arab world, so crucial in the last year, Al Jazeera Arabic, Al Arabiya, alongside BBC Arabic TV, have been breaking stories on what's happening there long before the English language media gets to it and online there's an even larger array of major news sites to choose from, and of our social media, of course, an even broader set of sources. So, um, coming on to the second challenge, this leads us to the second challenge, the changing role of elites, because there's been a shift of power, not just horizontally, geostrategically, but also vertically, from the top of society downwards. Politicians, officials, diplomats, they don't only not have the same ability as they used to in the past to control the agenda I think they're much more in danger of being caught in bubbles at the top out of touch with the currents beneath them Um, I met a US diplomat for a chat recently um, and he was contemplating possible moves to do with the Israeli-Palestinian dispute and how to deal with the Hamas problem and he was sort of in his mind moving countries and players around like pieces on a chessboard assuming that the U.S. could call in favours and twist arms because these were people who would want to do what the U.S. did. And I was struck by what seemed to be a quite old-fashioned assumption that countries would still jump in the same way when the U.S. called on them. And I had another recent conversation with an Arab diplomat. We were talking about the Syrian crisis. And he was predicting that the diplomatic solution might be to persuade Assad to reform, It be a deal involving Turkey and other regional players and I said well what about the Syrian opposition everyone on the street do you think they really buy it and he said oh no they're divided they they don't count you sort of think well hang on here what's going on on the streets in Syria for months and months is an important player in this and this was a a sort of traditional diplomat used to diplomacy behind closed doors which had perhaps not factoring that in, as he should do. Some diplomats do get it. There was a rueful comment from one senior US official I met this week who was uh, saying, you know, the days are gone when you can change policy with a speech anymore. And I think he's right. It does uh, uh, get drowned out in the avalanche of information. People don't listen to political speeches in the same way. Uh, And he was saying, you know, you've got to get the message out in a more imaginative public diplomacy way because old patterns of news management don't work the way they used to. Uh, there used to be a daily news conference uh, when I was Washington correspondent at the White House to dictate the news agenda or at least discuss it with White House correspondents and build towards the evening news on television when the nation was watching. Now if you uh, set, out, uh, 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 set a story going in the morning it's gone by lunchtime. The hungry 24-7 cycle of news has a very short attention span. This is leading to attempts by politicians to pre-leak speeches and then have another go when the speech comes out again but it It works to some extent in the confined world of Westminster here in the UK, but it doesn't in the crowded international arena. And this has had a big impact on the way that correspondents like me work. Gone are the days where you'd go off to the Foreign Office and come back with a story. Now you still go because it's very useful to stay in touch and you want to talk to them to get a sense of what the British government is thinking for that moment when a story emerges, but not because they dictated it. And one of the reasons for this, I think, is an erosion of interest in what elites say and do. I've noticed on the news I report and other mainstream media, it's much less interest in summits and conferences than there used to be. Pre-planned communiques and family photos don't make headlines the way they once did. There's less deference to those in charge. There's less trust in politicians as a whole. There's a suspicion that what's being said and shown is window dressing. And in an era where space and time is scrunched up by more immediate communications, they're having to compete for attention with other unplanned events and more compelling voices. And I think this has been a sort of circular event where one consequence has followed another because there's been an inevitable backlash to attempts at news management. Elites have tried to respond to modern news technology by having advisors who prep politicians and direct them to put on the best show for the cameras. But when this is revealed as a managed event and not reality, then in the end it works against them. A good example of that is President and now Prime Minister Putin in Russia. I don't know if some of you will, will be aware of the incident where he, he went on an underwater swimming expedition to retrieve an archaeological vase, as <laughs> though he'd just discovered it. Later it was revealed to have been planted, obviously, and it just made him a figure of fun. And I, mean, I think we're now seeing in Russia, his stunts and this whole concept of managed democracy could prove he's a killing They've managed him to the utmost. I did a recent TV piece on him. I could not find one bit of footage that had not been carefully crafted by the Kremlin. But if you can't show the genuine Mr. Putin, how's he going to appeal to people? I'm not writing off elites. The rise of the street and throwing off the old which isn't new, it's been going on since the French Revolution, doesn't always bring in the new. And the Arab ambassador was right when he talked about the importance of opposition leaders. Perhaps the lesson of failed coloured colored revolutions of the last decade is that these were the, the, the scenarios where opposition parties weren't sufficiently unified behind leadership to go on to the next stage. This may be critical in Russia in the next few years. But I don't think you can underestimate the new power of social media to multiply the effect of an incident and be have an extraordinary impact the video of a young woman being dragged through the streets by europe by egyptian security forces youtube pictures of violence in syria pictures of election fraud in russia it's a powerful challenge to governments who could once have got away with abuses now they either have to be prepared to clamp down in a big way or they have to face an erosion of authority and coming back to putin again he was booed in a sports arena it went all around russia on the internet Now he's targeted in spoof satirical videos on the internet and we're seeing the power of satire in social media which strips him of his emperor's clothes of alleged legitimacy and popularity through ridicule far more effectively than anger. It's very interesting. A note of caution here in this new era of speed and openness. I think we're just beginning to adjust to it and we have to assess the value of services like Twitter, Uh, and YouTube and and, and worry about the downsides I wonder about a self-referential howl round round, where you can get caught up in and overestimate the importance of what you're participating in and one wonders how long this will remain a brilliant vehicle for puncturing the old order and how long it'll be before it's a powerful tool to mislead and manipulate in its own right Um, I've sort of run out of time so I'm just going to skip through The last things I had to say, which is number one, how much technology had changed, which is obvious in a way. I've talked about it. The 24/7 cycle. You have another 10 minutes if you You need it. Yeah, yeah. uh, Um, Finish uh, in 10 uh, minutes. Yeah, I think it's okay. Um, This immediacy of information and, and the means to deliver it for a journalist is, of course, very welcome. You get a Twitter alert telling you some crowd somewhere, an incident has happened and you need to check it out you get some new information, you can fire off a quick line to the newsroom and it's dispersed to all outlets, we just at BBC set up a new system called Quickfire to streamline something from the field straight into the system all throughout our internal network I compare that with when I was in Ukraine in 1989 when I first became Moscow correspondent I went to cover an opposition demo in uh, Lvov, Lvov, as it's now called and checked into the local hotel and said, can I book a line to London? No mobile phones in those days. And they said, yeah, that'll take three days. <laughs> 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 but even if you think about more recently, in the 1990s, we were lugging laptops around in order to check the wires and find out what was happening elsewhere so you didn't report in a vacuum. In the early 2000s, we had our pager alerts, so in a news conference, you could look down and find out something someone had said and you could put it to the a benighted politician in a question. And now we have smartphones that link us not just to newsrooms and newswires, but to a network of millions of individuals around the world. So it's, it's, a, it's a new level of connectivity. It's astonishing how quickly it's happened. But then it brings with it dangers of, of sharing the same generic information that everybody has from the same sources, or spending too much time of being aware of what colleagues and competitors are doing to check you haven't missed something, uh, or following the crowd in order not to miss the main story i mean to some extent that's not new i was thinking about uh, old hands in war zones who used to chat in the bar and hang around in the hotel lobby to find out what the competition was up to this is just a new electronic version of that but it can be very time consuming and then of course there's the challenge to traditional journalists of so-called citizen journalism why do you need an army of professional hacks like you and me Uh, when eyewitnesses from a scene can themselves send in pictures and report and citizens can add insights and possibly greater expertise than a journalist who's just stepped off a plane. Uh, But I think I've thought about this a a bit and I I think actually what it has done for me is to make me realise that what we're about is expertise and judgement and a disciplined adherence to a balanced view, and also access, and that we should sort of maybe value this a bit more. It certainly made me value the privileges that come <coughs> in my job um, in being able to travel to see for yourself what's happening, so you're looking beyond the camera frame and the YouTube clip, and using your traditional skills for journalistic reportage to get a sense of the feel and the smell of the place, the whole context, not just the soundbite. And maybe there's less deference and less respect from the public for officialdom and its managed news. But if you can get inside that bubble, and there's a diplomatic correspondent, sometimes you do, sometimes I travel with the Foreign Secretary, it's a point of view that's still to be valued. You get face-to-face time with officials and briefings. You sometimes see events behind the scenes. And people will tell you things that nowadays they're even less likely to put into the public and leaky domain of electronic information. And in an era of so many open sources, I think background briefings, off-the-record briefings actually, uh, are more valuable than they ever were because it gives you access to relatively frank assessments in a world that's full of plethora of soundbites. Though I must admit you have to judge carefully. As I often think um, meeting officials now, or when I'm talking to them, that when they say, oh, and this has to be off the record, that actually what they're saying is not what I want to tell you is particularly true and particularly interesting, but really what they're saying is, I want you to particularly value this piece of information because it isn't true. This is where the spin starts, but I want it off the record because I don't want to put my name to it because I know it's not true. (laughs) So (laughs) you have to be a little careful sometimes. But coming finally to the fourth challenge, the interests of the audience. Um, If you think about it, the last year has been an unprecedented year for foreign news, certainly as seen from here in the UK. The Arab Spring, the war in Libya, now the conflict in Syria, the Japanese tsunami and the ensuing nuclear accident, the economic crisis in Europe, the continuing conflict in Afghanistan, all against a background of domestic, economic and political turmoil, crowded agenda. And against these dramatic events, it's... It has been a challenge to find airtime for the slow detail of diplomatic policy, especially when it's all so much more diffuse than it used to be, conducted by a range of actors in capitals across the globe, not necessarily in English, uh, with no clear outcome. And yes, the new media outlets, outlets, especially online, mean that a specialist. Informed audience is now better served than ever to keep abreast uh, across a range of issues. But for the broader broadcast audience, and coming from the BBC, that's something I think about a lot, I think it's more of a challenge to keep people informed. It's much harder to explain these things in headline terms. And that's what a lot of people absorb nowadays. Um, About a decade ago, I gave a talk on um, the changing role of media to St. Anthony's College, College Oxford, my college here in Oxford. And I remember I joked at the end of it that um, before long, all news would have to be boiled down to bumper sticker length because that's how we would consume news on the go. Because it was clear that all technology was moving to mobile technology. Because I wasn't wrong, sadly. You know, it's the straps on the bottom of the 24-hour news channel. It's the limited number of characters on Twitter. Yes, there's headline, there's online news where you can have page after page, but actually if you talk to, certainly if you talk to BBC online people, most of the hits are on the front page, and there's a reluctance to scroll down. So you need, as a diplomatic correspondent, to keep track of what's happening. You try to update the audience where possible, because all these potential (coughs) crises and conflicts below the radar have the potential to erupt into major attention-grabbing drama. And these days, it could be in any remote or forgotten corner of the globe without notice because of space and time being so condensed. New media provides a range of platform for news. But I think the problem is, especially if you look at this from a broadcast point of view, but even if you don't look at it from a broadcast, but a narrow cast point of view, it's hard to get away from the fact that it's the added power of visual media that seems to make the real difference... We all rely on headline straps in text to update ourselves on our iPhones or go to news articles for more detail. But in general terms, if you think about it, it's when the pictures are added via TV news or YouTube videos, user-generated content as we call it, that a story really takes off. And the dilemma is that this technology means that these live pictures and reports from the remotest corner of the world can be beamed straight into a living room or onto your smartphone in clearest quality, and you can follow and immerse yourself in the unfolding drama. But just as the spotlight can be switched on when public attention is grabbed, it can also be switched off again, partly for economic reasons. It's very expensive to keep big teams and equipment on assignments everywhere, and you have to make choices. But it's also partly to do with audience attention span. And the very fact that all this news can come to you in high-quality vision does have the seductive feel of a Hollywood movie. And I think there is always an insidious risk of letting this news slide into infotainment. You want the story to move on. You want it to reach a conclusion. If it doesn't, and every day doesn't change much, then something else will take its place and it will be forgotten. And uh, think of uh, what happened last year when the Libya conflict took off. Suddenly attention was turned away from what was happening in Bahrain, in Pearl Square, making it easier for the Gulf authorities to crush the protest. A Syrian government spokesman said to me recently, you know, Assad will be all right, he can hang on. International attention will eventually get tired of it. And then he can do what he needs to do. So the media has to do more than just entertain and engage. It has to keep abreast of all these things below the radar. But it also has to be aware of its potential to act as a player. I know that BBC News Editorial Management is very aware of this and is thinking hard, how do you counter the deadening effect of a story which is not going anywhere? (coughs) And we constantly try to be aware of our role uh, as a potential interactor in what's going on and not just observer. So in conclusion, I would just say... Yes, it's less clear-cut now than 10 years ago, what to, what to prioritize, how to call developing crisis. It's less black and white, what judgments you should make. I remember when I was a correspondent in Moscow, I once got rung up by the Bush House newsroom, this would be about 1990, Sunday afternoon, <coughs> uh, not much about, I was hugely relieved because it was a very busy job. And uh, the editor in the newsroom said, Bridget, can you please find us a story? We, have, we need a fourth news headline. And I said, I can't just conjure up a story for you. And he said, no, 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 uh, we take the view, you know, we're in the Cold War, and the biggest threat to the world is nuclear weapons, so at any one time we think one of our headlines should reflect something from Moscow. So go away and find a story. Well, it's not like that anymore. <laughs> it's more challenging than ever, though. But I think as far as technology goes, we need to remember that we're still in transition. We're learning to grapple with the implications of how modern journalism fits into these changes, both (coughs) technologically and politically, that the media isn't just an observer to report and filter. It's increasingly caught up in the process as a player. But that leaves me with the final thought that that must be very good business for you here at the (laughs) Institute of Journalism. Bridget, Thank you very much.